Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. You're back with Jay Shapiro. Right now, we're in the pop, we are finding a terrorist organization. The organization clearly says it wants to destroy Israel and murder all the Jews. And it means what it says. Now, so far, Israel has enjoyed unprecedented support diplomatically, militarily, and even morally from the United States. However, we find that the United States is increasingly wants to know what endgame in Gaza it is supporting. While it's clearly signed on to Israel's aim at, at crushing Hamas, Hamas militarily, who wants to know what Israel's planning to do once that's done. Now, it appears right now that U.S. and the Israel are at odds at what's supposed to happen after we defeat Hamas. The, uh, the U.S. President Joe Biden and Secretary of State Antony Blinken are reasserting of their belief in the return of the Palestinian Authority to replace the Hamas terror organization, and the PA will govern the Gaza Strip, and then we will look forward to the two-state solution at the outcome of the uh, dispute between the Palestinians of Israel. Now, this outcome, the two-state solution, is echoed by international leaders and organizations and is again being bandied about as a form of collective and generalized wishful thinking as the only panacea to this Palestinian-Israeli conflict. As a matter of fact, the U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris made a statement in which he said, we want to see a unifying Gaza and West Bank under the Palestinian Authority. Palestinian Authority security forces must be strengthened to eventually assume security responsibility in Gaza. And the Palestinian Authority must be revitalized, driven by the will of the Palestinian people, which will allow them to benefit from the rule of law, so forth. In other words, the American vision for the day after this war is the Palestinian Authority back in control. However, I'm afraid the U.S. is taking the easy way out. Why does it want the Palestinian Authority inside Gaza? Because the United States knows the Palestinian Authority. They do not know any other Palestinian group. The U.S. continues to have a romanticized image of the Palestinian Authority as a body that wants to live in peace alongside Israel and whose security forces wish to fight terror. That is what the U.S. thinks. This is all wishful thinking. The phrase two-state solution is constantly being repeated despite the fact that the concept of two states as a solution has never been officially accepted 
as the agreed solution either by Israel or by the Palestinian leadership. On the contrary, as agreed upon in the Oslo Accords, which incidentally are still valid, the permanent status of the territories remains an open negotiating issue. As such, repetition of the call for a two-state solution prejudges the outcome of the negotiating process and underestimates the flawed capabilities of the Palestinian Authority. The Palestinian Authority, as we know it, is simply not capable of governing. Now, obviously, any concept of two states would include the establishment of a Palestinian state alongside Israel could only come from direct negotiations between Israel and a fully representative Palestinian leadership. It could not be the result of an off-the-cuff political declaration or resolution issued by the United Nations or any other source, nor could a two-state solution emerge from vague calls for international leaders for a two-state solution it's sort of a form of wishful thinking, collective wishful thinking. Now, what happened? The Palestinian Authority was supposed to rule uh, Gaza, and the Hamas usurped governance of Gaza from the Palestinian Authority. They took over, and the now they have a politically uh, non-viable Palestinian entity so if, if there would, would be such one in the West Bank, it would be open to manipulation by other forces like Iran and by terror elements. It could never be acceptable to Israel or to international community inasmuch it would constitute a constant threat to Israel's security as, and also to regional stability. So... On the basis of experience from previous agreements between Israel and the Palestinians, any realistic and permanent solution, whether it be one state or two states or what have you, or federation or confederation, it will need to include solid international guarantees, meaning both legal, political, and particularly security. So, you have to make sure, if there would be such a solution, you have to make sure it wouldn't be violated, abrogated, and wouldn't constitute a threat to Israel. So such an end may be achieved, or must be achieved, before anybody can talk about a two-state solution. First and foremost, the, there has to be the replacement of the Hamas terror administration of Gaza then there has to be some kind of governing framework there. There must be the mobilization of capable international elements who would oversee the reconstruction of Gaza, because Gaza is going to be destroyed. And they have to ensure the humanitarian and economic welfare of the tens of thousands of Palestinians who live there. There could be an international framework and, or, or uh, something like that. There could be uh, uh, all kinds of uh, forces brought in from outside. That, like if they had that in the past, 
they could have a, a, an updated version of the UN frameworks that uh, that called UNIFIL and others like they have in uh, in uh, Lebanon. But ultimately, the decision as to which mechanism would be most suitable would depend on con- concurrence concurrence in Israel, the United States, and international community. So calls for restoring the Palestinian Authority as the governing body in the Gaza Strip are naive and uninformed. Just as a naive and uninformed this two-state solution, there is tremendous corruption rife among the leadership of the Palestinian Authority and even in the area which they, in the West Bank, they have been unable to establish a government that governs properly. The, uh, the president of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, won an election, uh, I think it's 15 years ago. There hasn't been an, uh, uh, an election instead. <coughs> and it's failed to maintain security within the area it governs. Judea and Samaria, and it has a policy of its encouragement to terror. They pay people for killing Jews. They finance terror. They pay salaries to perpetrators of terror against Israel and to their families. So let's imagine you could stabilize the situation in the Gaza Strip after this war. You would dismantle the terror infrastructure, get rid of all the weapons and ammunition. It would be completely demilitarized. Only then could it be possible to consider the wider context of a solution to the Israeli-Palestinian dispute. It would have to involve a, 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 a Palestinian administration that has a responsibility not the, like the corrupt one you have now, that one that would be capable of governing, which it can't right now, and of fulfilling its international obligations, which the Palestinian Authority cannot do right now. Only if all these things were changed could it be possible to consider options for solving the dispute. <coughs> no, no matter how many states you want to divide them, so, after this war is over now, it will take a tremendous amount of time to rebuild a modicum of good faith and mutual trust with any kind of Palestinian group that's set up. It can't be hurried by flippant, irresponsible calls for a two-state solution. Simply calling for a two-state solution not realizing what it means, makes no sense whatsoever. It could be that because of all the United States has invested in the Palestinian Authority over over these many years, 30 years, perhaps it, it sees no viable alternative. So that's why Washington continues to look at, at the Palestinian Authority and talk what and sees what it wants to see, not what is actually there. What is actually there is a corrupt body cannot cannot control the West Bank without the support of Israel. 
It's allowed Hamas to gain significant inroads even there in the West Bank. It's lost Gaza once before. It educates its children to hate Israel. It pays terrorists money for killing Jews. Israel will not hand control to any organization like that. And our prime minister has made it clear at a recent press conference, he said that Israel is unwilling to overlook all the bad things that come from the Palestinian Authority. It doesn't fight terrorism. It funds terror. It doesn't educate toward peace. It educate toward Israel's disappearance. This is not the entity that needs to take control of Gaza. Now, obviously, Netanyahu is correct. But the problem is, it's not enough for Netanya to say what cannot be in Gaza after the war. Obviously, no Hamas, no Palestinian Authority. The question is, what could be there after this war? So it, I think our government has to articulate a vision that will get support because the the United States has to be continued to, to uh, convince of some kind of a reasonable dis, uh, state after this war is over that, that Israel will, will believe in. Then the, so articulating a vision will help sustain U.S. support as American officials then be able to say that Israel is not only trying to destroy Hamas, but it also has a plan for what is supposed to happen after Hamas is destroyed. So far, Netanya has said that after the war, Gaza will be demilitarized and that the Israeli army will retain overall security control, much in the same manner it employs overall security control in the West Bank, even though the Palestinian Authority essentially governs there. However, our government has not provided any, any details of who exactly will police Gaza, who will administrate Gaza, and who will rebuild Gaza. So Israel, even though we're busy fighting a war, should take the initiative and present a vision and a plan. Now, I'd like to assume that our government has some committees doing this already. It's never enough to say what you are against. It's equally important to say what you're for. Now, if, in, in the bottom line here, it's not only have, you have to say what you're for, but this is especially true if Israel wants to maintain strong U.S. support going forward. So obviously we have to clean up Gaza. We have to destroy Hamas. The question is, do we have a plan for what is supposed to come next? And it's important that we have a plan to present to our allies. Otherwise, we'll be in a position where all kinds of solutions will be thrust upon us, even against our will. And we can't have that. By the way, along these same lines, uh, it's dehumanizing to deny the widespread Palestinian Jew hatred or to restrain Israel's armies in ways that 
even American generals wouldn't tolerate. It's interesting that the American campuses were calm in 2017 when Americans helped liberate Mosul, M-O-S-U-L, from ISIS despite killing 10,000-plus innocent non-hostile civilians as what is called collateral damage. And the firepower American the Allies unleashed against the civilians to defeat Nazi Germany and the fascist Japan in World War II show how surgical Israel's assault is. Israel is really trying not to kill civilians. When the Americans drop bombs on German cities or Japanese cities, when they dropped an atomic bomb and killed 100,000 people, that a lot of those people might have been anti-war. It doesn't matter. There is, there is damage done, collateral damage. So calls for an Israeli ceasefire has no credibility. There was the, the truth of the matter was, there was a ceasefire on October 6th. But on October 7th, Hamas broke by their barbaric assault on peaceful civilians. So Hamas has consistently broken ceasefires. So moral clarity doesn't prevent Israelis from being sorry about having to kill Palestinian children and other innocents. But that is what happens in the war. There's no doubt that Israel tries minimizing civilian deaths but the primary responsibility of Israel is protect its own citizens. And by doing so, they're protecting Western civilization. Now, Hamas has to be removed. Most Palestinians in Gaza and abroad support Hamas's evil. The, 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 uh, when, when Biden talks about... Uh, morality, it reflects just war, war theory. It's the only realistic, realistic way of ending humanitarian crisis in Gaza. The, uh, the, the, we, are, we are a moral country. We have a moral army. We are fighting an immoral enemy. We are going to destroy that enemy. What's going to happen the day after we still do not know. However, it's very important that our thinkers start thinking of what we want the situation to be after the war is over. And it could well be that this war is going to be over in, let's say, a month or six weeks. And hopefully our government will have plans on ready for what to do after that. Otherwise, we're going to be in a situation when other people's plans are going to be thrust on us, and it simply isn't going to be good. So while we're in the process of defeating the enemy, we have to think very strongly, what are we going to do the day after the enemy is defeated? Otherwise, others are going to come and insist that we do it their way, and their way may not be the best way for us. So this is a very serious situation, and one can only hope that our government is thinking about it already.
because in a couple of months we're going to have to live with the reality of this war being over and what happens next. I'll be back after the break. Hi, I'm Rabbi David Aaron. The soul basics are the most profound, the most essential, and yet often the most neglected in our education. Join me for Soul Talk on Israel's News Talk Radio and discover the secrets to love, spiritual growth, and personal power. You're back with Jay Shapiro. As a general rule, I don't read articles on my program. I just speak. But I came across an editorial in the uh, Jerusalem Post this week on Monday that had information in it that I want to share with the listeners because I don't know this kind of information is generally available. So I'm going to read it. I'll leave parts out, but the important parts I want my listeners to know. There is a revelation by the Israeli army uncovering a teddy bear loaded with ammunition and a concealed sniper rifle in a Gaza school has once again brought to light a disturbing pattern that is far from isolated. These findings, far from being anomalies, underscore the systematic exploitation of funds resources and institutions meant to improve the lives of Palestinians in Gaza. All this is done by Hamas. It is imperative that discussions about Gaza include the terrorist group's blatant robbery of the Palestinian people's chance themselves at a normal life. These conversations should not shy away from nuance and must acknowledge the fundamental fact that Hamas has sabotaged the prospects for Palestinian livelihood in the Gaza Strip by intertwining its terror infrastructure with civilian facilities. Last Wednesday, the Israeli army uncovered one of the largest Hamas weapons stockpiles in Gaza, housing hundreds of missiles, launchers, long-range rockets, anti-tank missiles, UAVs, and explosives. Shockingly, but not surprisingly, this cache was located near a hospital and a school exemplifying the terrorist group's callous disregard for civilian lives. On Thursday, Israeli soldiers worked to dismantle RPG launchers, ammunition, and other military equipment stored inside a civilian residential building in Gaza City. They also demolished tunnel shafts and rocket launchers in the same site, uncovering a tunnel shaft hidden within a school. On December 4th, the Israeli army reported destruction of infrastructure in school in Beit Hanun, used by Hamas of operatives, 
the troops discovered two tunnel entrances, one of which was booby-trapped. Several weeks earlier, a Hamas tunnel was found in close proximity to UNRWA's school, further highlighting the group's reprehensible tactics. All of the terrorist infrastructure was found near civilian buildings in the heart of a civilian population. This is further proof of the cynical use that the terrorist organization makes of the residents of the Gaza Strip as a human shield. In late November, during a confrontation with terrorists inside a high school, large quantities of military equipment and weapons were unearthed. A month before that, evidence surfaced that the underbelly of the Rantisi Hospital was used as an operations center for Hamas, complete with tunnels leading out of it. Given the frequency of such discoveries, it's lucky that the Israeli army will expose more terror bases in public civilian spaces as the army advances into the southern part of Gaza. The unfolding war of narratives, both in the media and on social platforms, is nothing short of vicious. The cruel absurdity of what Hamas has done, embedding embedding terror headquarters in civilian infrastructures deemed untouchable, often gets overshadowed by the immense tragedy faced by Palestinians themselves in Gaza due to Hamas's war on Israel. Acknowledging the nuance of the situation is crucial. While sympathizing with the loss of life experienced by Palestinians in Gaza, it is vital not to lose sight of the broader narrative that has unfolded over the past decade. Gaza is a 365-square-kilometer enclave. A complete negation of life takes place and a usurpation of money, resources, education, and ideology, all aimed at eliminating Israel's existence from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. In the realm of diplomacy, there is only so much can be expected by our army. The narrative is entrenched we have failed in our diplomacy. However, tax-funded government ministries must lead efforts to address these challenges. The evidence provided by the military should serve as a crucial pillar supporting these endeavors. It's time for more people to listen, embrace the complexity of the situation, and refrain from qualifying the tragedies experienced by one population with another. Compassion for the civilian plight in Gaza should coexist with an understanding of the systematic negation of Palestinian life by Hamas over the past decade. So, the success of the IDF, the Israeli army in Gaza, has effectively exposed the intrinsic, systematic nature of what's been going on in Gaza. 
deeply embedded in the very infrastructure of the region. And by the way, that uh, what I pretty much quoted up to now is an editorial of Jerusalem Post. It also should be noted by um, they they've taken um, uh, they try to find out what the Palestinian people actually think of uh, of Hamas, and it turns out studies done here by uh, respected institutions show that upwards of uh, 80, 80 to eighty five percent of the Palestinian population in Gaza supports Hamas. So just that uh, you can see by the fact that the, the tunnels are being built under um, in private homes or uh, apartment houses indicates that the population uh, is pretty much supportive of Hamas. And this is the nature of the enemy that we're f- facing right now. And uh, we should be aware of it. It's a big the, uh, entire population wants to destroy Israel. Obviously, in, in, in times of war, civilians are going to be harmed, uh, even without intention. The question you have to ask yourself about the civilian population in Gaza is whether or not it's really uh, an innocent civilian population, or it's one that it's allowed Hamas to essentially take over the entire area. So, um, I guess it's pretty much of an open question. Maybe there's some people in Gaza who didn't uh, support Hamas, but um, these are the facts on the ground. And our job is to wipe out Hamas and then see how to rebuild that area, which is going to be a, a real difficult problem unto itself. Now, having said that, I want to touch upon a number of items not related but I think they'd be of interest to the listeners. You don't hear these things in other places. First thing I want to talk about, something that really you never get headlines, uh, even in when it appears in the Israeli newspapers, it appears back on page six or seven. It has to do with uh, the terrorist attacks by the, uh, by the Houthi. The Houthi are rebels in uh, Yemen, and uh, they support... They're anti-Israel. As a matter of fact, they managed to uh, shoot a missile toward Israel last week and landed near Eilat, our southern city. At any rate, it turns out that the terrorist attacks by the Iranian-based Houthi uh, have continued now for three weeks, largely unchecked. The attacks have even escalated over the past week because what's happened is that they're firing at ships that are, that are container ships, for example, that are traveling near Yemen. Uh, so Israel has approached several Western and Arab countries because they're trying to set up some kind of task force, and um, the, uh, the, the United States, the U.S. Navy is also involved. Now, what's happened is that U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan has called for the establishment of a NATO, naval task force. And there are reports that British and Japanese warships are heading for the Bab al-Mundi Strait, which is the very narrow entry to the Red Sea offshore from Yemen, which is the the only southern access to the Suez Canal. Take a look at the map, and you see you have to come through uh, Bab al-Mundi out of the Indian Ocean uh, to uh, the Red Sea, 
to get toward the Suez Canal to come to uh, the Mediterranean Sea. So what's happening is that shipping companies are not waiting for such an international task force and have meanwhile rerouted many of their vessels away from the Red Sea and away from the Suez Canal. Instead, if they're going toward Europe, for example, let's say from India or from China, they take they go around the southern tip of Africa instead. They go around South Africa, and this adds thirteen thousand kilometers uh, to the trip and ten to fourteen days to their um, to for them to reach from the far east to Europe. So the um, it's five Israeli ships so far have already rerouted away from the Suez Canal around Africa's Cape of Good Hope. So what's happened is, the, uh, it, it's interesting. Uh, the, uh, for example, uh, at the end of November, uh, an Israeli ship, the Zim Lines, rerouted a container ship which can ca- contain up to f- 5,600 containers. It left Boston which is on the east coast of the United States, and it is headed for, headed for Malaysia. So generally a ship like that, going from United States to Malaysia, would sail through the Mediterranean, then through the Suez Canal, and then, that, then into the Indian Ocean. Instead, around, instead, the ship turned back off the Algerian coast and sailed around Africa instead. It added like two weeks to the trip, so uh, the so this is what's happening. If some you know you don't read about in the papers here, even here in Israel, as I said, the article that I'm quoting um, is way back on page six. So it's interesting, by the way. I learned something from the article, which I want to share with the listeners. The Suez Canal is responsible for 30% of maritime container traffic. Between 50 and 60 ships sail per day through the Suez Canal. That's like 19,000 ships per year. So uh, so the, the ships now that are avoiding the canal, they're traveling all the way around Africa, of the... Uh, and it's it's essentially it's the expense of the at the expense of the of the uh, canal. Could these ships pay to uh, travel through the canal? The the uh, the transit fee in the canal ranges from four hundred thousand to seven hundred thousand, and uh, that's so. What's that money goes to Egypt? And Egypt's going to be losing that money. By the way, the insurance prices for shipping goods to Israel have also risen. They've uh, added um, insurance for containers, and uh, and so the because of the war we have here, we have the side effect of the shipping rates rising as uh, Israeli and other vessels go around Africa instead of going through the Suez Canal. So that's something that's not in the headlines, but I was uh, I skimmed through the papers and I found this article I wanted to share with the listeners because I found it interesting. There's a side effect of our war, shipping rates. 
I want to finish this segment of my program with uh, several items that are also way, way under the headlines. Uh, there, um, they had a meet, meeting in the Knesset the, the other day that discussed the dangers to women as a result of looser restrictions on gun permits. <coughs> because of the President Moore, the, uh, it's easier to get a gun now. Uh, you know, you have to get a permit, etc. But after the uh, what happened in Gaza on October 7th, the National Security Ministry loosened the restrictions restrictions for people to get gun permits, and now it's easier to get a gun. So in the last two months since the war began, it's become pretty apparent people are not being made to fulfill the requirements before being given gun permits. They, lo- they loosened the requirements needed to get a gun permit. And uh, it could well be the people who are now getting guns are not as qualified as they should be. With the higher demand from civilians to hold weapons, some 265,000 applications were submitted between October 7th and December 8th, out of which 86,000 were approved. In other words, 86,000 more people are carrying guns in Israel than they did two months ago. Matter of fact, only four applications were turned down because of, uh, it turned out that the people who applied for the permits were uh, convicted of domestic abuse. So what happened was the um, they're worried now that they don't have enough mechanism to cross-check applicants and they, they should cross-check them with the Welfare and Social Service Ministry because they're afraid that people who are really not qualified are getting guns. So the the, the ministers of Knesset, the women ministers, uh, initiated this project that um, the, the uh, obviously since October 7th, people have a, a lesser feeling of security and there's no doubt the civilians with weapons have saved lives during terror attacks. However, the prices for obtaining a gun license become too loose, and it poses a risk to many women, according to the women members of the Knesset. So uh, Israel has seen a, a lot of debate over the last couple of months about whether the risk of more civilians being given guns outweigh the benefits. So, uh, by the way, this was uh, really came, um, it was brought forth into question a couple of weeks ago. Something happened here in Jerusalem. A civilian named uh, uh, Yuval Kasteman uh, saved the lives during a terror attack right at the entrance to Jerusalem, and he shot the terrorists, but then he himself was mistaken for a terrorist and accidentally shot dead by soldiers who arrived on the scene. So this uh, Israeli citizen, civilian, who carried a gun, who had killed the terrorists, was killed later by soldiers who had mistaken him. So the the incident is obviously unfortunate, but according to National Security Minister Ben Veer, his policy is to distribute as many weapons as possible to uh, people, and that that policy is going to remain unchanged. As long as we have a, 
the situation that we have now, uh, he feels that more people should have weapons. And the problem is that they've lowered the uh, requirements for getting a weapon, and uh, so there's a very strong possibility. This has always been a country where a lot of people walk around with weapons. You, you go into a bus, you go into a train, you, you walk down the street, you see people carrying guns. By the way, it's even more so now because you have a lot of soldiers home on leave, you know, and they can't. They have to guard their guns. You can't leave your gun home alone. It might get stolen. So it's quite common now. There's something to see in this you never used to see before, and that is you go into a, a restaurant or you go into a, a shopping center and you see a, show, a soldier home on leave with his wife, with his children, maybe perhaps pushing a baby carriage, and even though he's not in uniform, he's got a, a rifle slung over his shoulder. It's become very common for the, to, for the, to see this scene here in Israel. So um, I know if I was in Brooklyn and I saw a guy walking down the street with a rifle over his shoulder, I would move as fast as I could in the opposite direction. Here, it's very common. One gets used to it. I'll be back after the break. Warning. Take cover. The Jewish Truth Bomb is here. The show that will explode all the false narratives and fake news. Join host Lenny Goldberg each week as he wires the news together and detonates it through biblical verses that will deliver a shockwave that will blow you away. Don't miss it. The Jewish Truth Bomb. Every Monday. You're back with Jay Shapiro. The first thing I want to mention on the program now is something that uh, I just became aware of this week, something very moving. I want to share it with the listeners. A soldier named Ben Zussman was killed in the battle in the Gaza Strip last week. And uh, he sent a letter, which he left with a friend of his before he went off to war. And he said to his friend, if I should, something should happen to me, please give this letter to my family. Turned out he was killed, unfortunately. And um, he asked his family in his letter, to turn his Shiva morning into a week of friends, family, and fun. He wrote this letter, as I said, he gave it to a friend of his, and he wrote the following. I'm writing you this message on the way to the base. If you're reading this, something must have happened to me. As you know about me, there's probably no one happier than me right now. It's not just that I was really happy for the realization of my dream soon. I'm happy and grateful for the privilege to protect our beautiful land and the people of Israel. Even if something happens to me, I'm not permitting you to sink into sadness. I had the benefit to fulfill my dream and my purpose, and you can be sure that I'm watching you and smiling a huge smile. 
I will probably sit, sit next to Grandpa and bridge some gaps. Each of us will talk about our experiences and what changed from war to war. Maybe we'll be able to talk a little politics. I'll ask him what he thinks. If, God forbid, you sit Shiva, make it a week of friends, family, and fun. There should be food, meat, of course, beer, sweet drinks, seeds, tea, and, of course, mother's cookies. Make jokes, tell stories, meet all my other friends you haven't met yet. I'm jealous of you. I like to sit there and see them all. That's the end of the note. Turns out he was 22 years old and is a combat engineer with the 401st Armored Brigade. He was killed on December 3rd in northern Gaza. He added in his letter that if he were taken captive, he did not want his family to campaign for his release or for any deal to be signed for his release. He wrote further, and I quote, I'm not prepared for terrorists to be released in exchange for me in any way, shape, or form. Please do not violate this. I'll say it again. I left the house without even being called to the reserves. I'm full of pride and a sense of mission, and I've always said that if I have to die, I hope it will be in defense of others and the country and Jerusalem. I have entrusted guards. One day I have entrusted guards. One day I'll be one of them. The uh, turned out the unquote that turns out the family received a letter two days after he had been killed, and his mother said he freed us from any doubts. He left with a full heart, out of great love. He strengthened us and added us to be added asked us to be happy. There is something liberating in this clarity that allows you to breathe. We happy opportunity to meet all his sweet friends while we were sitting shiva, the ones we didn't get to meet and only heard stories about. When we went up to the grave at the end of the seven days of shiva, his friends put a shirt with his picture on it and a few cigarettes next to the grave. Some Hapoel juice, some stickers, and bottles of beer. When we finished the ceremony, I opened one bottle. We all said cheers, and a bottle was passed between us. We will be sad forever, said his mother, but we will try to enjoy the pleasures of the little things in life. Unquote. That's the story of this Ben Sussman killed at the age of 22, the note he left for his parents. Very sad, very moving, and I wanted to just share it with the listeners. Now I want to say a few words about something that's really making the rounds, and it has to do with the proceedings in Congress with the heads of three colleges, the University of Pennsylvania, of which I happen to be a graduate myself, Harvard, and MIT. 
And the heads of these universities were questioned about Congress, about uh, anti-Semitism on their campuses, and the um, their uh, answers they gave were really disgraceful. And uh, the person who became very well known was the a a repre- congressional representative known named Elise Stefanik. He's not Jewish. She offered the presidents of these universities a chance to answer with a very sensible affirmative to her question. And uh, she said her question was calling whether calling for the genocide of Jews violates their institution's code of conduct regarding bullying or harassment. Apparently, all these universities have some kind of code of conduct for how students have to behave on the campus, and they're not allowed to bully or harass. So the congressman asked whether calling for genocide of Jews violates that code of Congress. So um, the, uh, they had a chance to answer. The, the answer could be a simple yes. It's not... Uh, it's not, uh, it, w- it wasn't really a difficult question. So they got answers like it's a context-dependent decision. All three of the uh, uh, presidents from Harvard, MIT, and Penn answered it was a context-dependent decision. And apparently millions of people watched this. Now, the inability to acknowledge the threat posed to Jewish students, uh, comparing Zionists to Nazis, for example, or holding apartheid week, which I know they did at Penn, and shouting for global intifada. So the answers they gave, or they didn't give really, exposed the double standard charade by which some universities promote safe spaces and prevent intimidation. Now, what happened was the, um, the, head, the, the woman who heads the University of Pennsylvania named McGill, she quit last week. Why? Uh, because the donors there showed a lot of discontent, the alumni, the faculty, and even it turns out that the, a member of the, of the board of Penn is Joel Shapiro, who's the governor of Pennsylvania, obviously a Jew. By the way, if I'm not mistaken, it was his, um, his father uh, was governor also, or his uncle, but he didn't use the name Shapiro then. He used the name Shap, S-H-A-P-P. At any rate, it turns out now, when people like these heads of universities or important people have to go to some kind of questioning, like a congressional hearing, they they get professional help on how to um, answer. The uh, so there are there are companies actually train people for the purpose of what will happen when they're being questioned. So what they try to do these companies who get big money for this, is try try to formulate reasonable replies to uh, hard questions. And uh, what they do is they actually prepare them in written um, uh, instructions. So to do, they, uh, the, 
So what they do is they they are really preparing well, and uh, they and they're taught to listen closely to the way the questions are being asked. And so it turned out several of the college presidents, these three women, were actually prepped by a law firm called Wilmer Hale which boasts a leading practice in congressional investigations. They train people, and like CEOs of companies that are going to be asked tough questions, uh, how to answer in high-profile government probes. Apparently, with these three women who have been cautioned that uh, they shouldn't... Um, allow themselves to be treated like, like they were being um, uh, spoken to by prosecutors so that they, uh, they, they tried to avoid uh, questions that would require them to give a specific yes or no answer. In other words, before these three college professors sat down in front of uh, Congress, they were well trained. The uh, so uh, the, it, the, the the what happened was uh, at the uh, I saw an article and it said the um, the Harvard president later told the Harvard Crimson and that's a mag- the school magazine magazine she 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 said I got caught up in what had become at that point an extended com- exchange about policies and procedures the uh, you know. People should know that uh, when protected speech has broken from the norms of civil discourse, the uh, that could really ruin their lives if they answered the wrong way. So it's unfortunate that those heading some of the country's most prestigious universities could not unequivocally hear the indecency of the voices who openly applauded the annihilation of the state of Israel or, or, or seeing their own students, Jewish students on their campus, suffering because of their Jewishness. The, uh, so the, uh, the, the chairman of Penn's board of trustees defended Miss McGill, who the president, he assured that she's not the slightest bit anti-Semitic. Interesting, Scott Buck, the chairman of Penn's Board of Trustees, also quit. And uh, so the, the president and the head of Board of Trustees quit. The, uh, she, she provided a legalistic answer to a moral question. That's how it, they wanted to defend her that a moral question requires a moral answer. The, uh, he, he fumbled the question, because the only answer, as the congressman said, was yes or no is the answer. Instead, they went into a long harangue in reverse. So, um, so the uh, it turns out that the universities like unfortunately Penn, my alma mater, support relative norms for policing campus speech and behavior. The uh, 
in the universities, they, they safeguard certain groups who are perceived to be victims, but they, they don't protect others for whom it's unfashionable to protect like Jews. So um, it's interesting. It, 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 the, uh, these three presidents really made fools out of themselves. And it, the thing that really bothered them, of course, was the, the, the fear of losing millions in donors' aid, that hundreds of millions of dollars are given to these colleges. So, uh, so they, they failed. These, uh, so the uh, these high, high quality institutions like Penn and MIT and Harvard. Their leadership failed to take a moral position, and they did it publicly in Congress. And that says that the universities really, in a sense, have trouble. If their own leadership cannot take a moral position, then higher education in the United States has a serious problem. By the way, along these lines, I should note that the United States has the very large free speech rights permitting hate speech or even the most uh, offensive speech on campus uh, or anywhere else. It's limited by incitement, individual defamation, obscenity, and child pornography. Other than that, you can pretty much say what you want in the United States and get away with it. And traditionally, of course, colleges have permitted expression of unpopular speech. The, uh, that's the way it is. That's the free marketplace of uh, ideas. And um, the, uh, in, the, in the past, by the way, there have been instances of violent student insurrections. Uh, I remember that years ago, 1968 to 1972, a whole bunch of colleges in the United States uh, had uh, uprisings, and they centered largely around racial issues and the Vietnam War. Anybody's old enough to remember there were very large um, protests against the Vietnam War. And uh, in most instances, the universities appeased the protesters and that was it. It was over. And it was over in the big universities, Cornell, Columbia, Harvard, Dartmouth, Princeton, Howard, CCNY, Penn, all these places. Now, the, um, in recent years, American universities have been devising policies to limit free speech in order to make students feel more comfortable and safe from speech that's uh, hostile or unpleasant. So uh, they have all kind of programs of what they call diversity, equity, and inclusion, and promote the uh, representatives of identities and studies and different races and ethnicities, and even genders, and even sexual orientations. So all this is designed to move away from what they was considered a monopoly of white Christian males who've been privileged to control Western civilization. So uh, the, over the years, they've tried to do away with the with essentially white Christian uh, domination. 
So uh, it's interesting, by the way, all the presidents that appeared at the uh, at the congressional hearing were women. So uh, it's interesting, really. So uh, so a, a female identity can't stop you from becoming a, um, a president of a major university. So the these three university presidents they're not who, who spoke and they're not anti-Semites. So the question you can ask yourself is how come they messed up in front of uh, Congress? That uh, how come they couldn't say that calling for the genocide of Jews is not permitted in their universities? What happened to them? It's a common sense thing, and uh, you know it, it's embarrassing. I, without going into the, any further into the details, there are all kind of well, comments have been made this week about the appearance of these three college presidents. I think we can say that the visit to Capitol Hill has been the exposure of the empty quality of American universities from the top down. Too many students and faculty view Jews as white oppressors. Denying Israel's legitimacy as a Jewish nation is evil. The, uh, by the way, the, the president of Penn has a tremendous background. She was, she, um, she worked for a Supreme Court justice and her husband. She teaches in University of Pennsylvania Law School and all these things, but she couldn't give a simple answer to a very simple question about anti-Semitism on the campus of her university. And if the head of a college, an Ivy League college in the United States, cannot give a simple answer to that simple question, higher education in the United States is in deep trouble. I'll be back after the break. Shalom, this is Nadia Matar from the Sovereignty Movement. At a time when there is so much disinformation, you have to know who to listen to to know what really is going on in Israel. Israel News Talk Radio is the radio where you can know that what you hear is the truth. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. You're back with Jay Shapiro, and of course I have to say something about the way that three heads of universities, Harvard, MIT, and Penn, spoke before a committee last week in Congress, and um, the way they responded has brought um, tremendous response from uh, benefactors at universities, <clears throat> newspaper items, and it's a, it's a such it's reverberated all week long more than a week now, and every day there was some kind of column in a newspaper and something said on the news about the way the three presidents of major universities in the United States failed to answer properly when they were confronted with questions about anti-Semitism. Among the responses, which doesn't get headlines in the United States, is the response from Israeli universities. There are nine research universities here in Israel, and all nine denounced the three top American university presidents, who, as I suggested in congressional hearings last week, 
said that anti-Semitic expressions and calls for genocide against Israel and the Jews may fall under the umbrella of free speech. That's what they said. So as I said, you're getting responses from all over and including all nine Israeli universities. They put out a statement last week and they said the following. There's been a disturbing display of hatred toward Jews and Israelis causing fear among this community on American campuses. Since the horrifying atrocity of October 7th, there's been a distressing surge in anti-Semitism and anti-Israeli sentiment on numerous campuses in the United States, including some of the most esteemed universities. Instead of offering empathy and support to Israeli and Jewish students in the wake of the brutal massacre of Jewish communities in their homeland, campuses have witnessed protests advocating for the annihilation of the state of Israel and endorsing terrorist activities across against Israeli citizens. The resurgence of hostility evokes memories of dark chapters in Jewish history. Under these distressing circumstances, there's an urgent need for firm leadership on American campuses, leadership that unequivocally declares this far no further. Regrettably, such resolute leadership appears to be lacking at present. While some individual academic leaders have vocally opposed anti-Semitism and actually uh, actively worked against it, many, many others have remained silent. So <clears throat> that is what the nine uh, Israeli university statement uh, concerning what had happened in the congressional hearing in the United States. The, um, keep in mind that the, the three uh, uh, congressional, the three uh, university leaders were from Harvard, uh, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and the University of Pennsylvania, which is my, my own alma mater. That's how I went to Penn. They were unable when they were asked by Congress whether a call for genocide of Jewish people aligns with their institution's code of conduct, astonishingly, they struggled to provide a straightforward answer, no. And they said it depends on the context. By the way, I note also that before these three university um, uh, presidents went before Congress and during the hearings in Congress, they were helped by organizations uh, whose job it is to help people answer questions in front of Congress. It strikes me as rather cowardly. It would seem to me that people who head universities should be of such an uh, intellectual quality that you sit down before a congressional committee without having to pay uh, consultants to tell them what to say. As a matter of fact, I noticed uh, and when I saw the committee hearings on the news, that the uh, these three college professors acted like little kids. They kept looking down at the notes, apparently that had been prepared by these uh, consultants on how to answer the questions. So the uh, it, it was really, really, uh, really disgraceful. 
the of course afterwards uh, some of them like Harvard's uh, president have, have released a statement explaining exactly uh, <clears throat> what she meant meanwhile the head of the University of Pennsylvania resigned and uh, so all these Jewish organizations have come out against universities the and the Israelis who wrote this letter from universities here stress the fact that apologies are expressions of regret and they're simply not enough. What is required are clear and decisive actions. So in their testimony before Congress, the uh, university presidents mentioned some uh, measures taken for security of Jewish students, but that simply is not enough. And so it's very embarrassing of how these uh, how these university professors answered the questions. As a matter of fact, I think one of the reasons they're uh, they're apologizing is because some of the uh, Jewish uh, people who donate to the universities uh, are are saying they're not going to give money. For example, there's a major donor who says he's asking for his money back after Penn, uh, from Penn, after hearing the way the, the president of Penn spoke. The guy's name is um, Stevens. He's the CEO of, uh, of, of a big company that does financial work. And um, he, he, uh, he, he sent a letter to universities saying, that he wanted to withdraw approximately $100 million from a gift made back in 2019. So the interesting that uh, all of a sudden the university presidents are afraid how much it's going to cost them because they couldn't stand up to anti-Semitism. By the way, the governor of Pennsylvania is a guy named Josh Shapiro. He's also a Democrat, and he's... uh, on the border to the University of Pennsylvania, and he also came out in a, really an indictment uh, because the university couldn't come out against anti-Semitism. There, uh, the, uh, there's a problem at the university level in the United States. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, one other thing I want to say on this subject, there is a rabbi named David Wolpe uh, he's a leader of the conservative movement, and uh, he uh, he's a visiting scholar at Harvard Divinity School, and he announces recognition from the um, Anti-Semitism Advisory Committee on Harvard University. In other words, there's been a tremendous backlash because these presidents of universities could not come out in a simple statement about anti-Semitism, that is absolutely disgraceful, and it reflects on the level of uh, higher education in the United States. They, uh, they don't know how to speak up for the truth, and it's really unspeakable. And uh, the, uh, the Rabbi Bidens, Rabbi Wolfing, who quit Harvard, uh, he added that it would take more than a committee from a single university to battle the ideology in question. The, uh, there is a problem on the campuses in the United States, which means there's a problem, problem, a problem for the future of the United States because the universities produce the leaders.
the uh, the, uh, the it's terrible what's happening in universities. So uh, the these institutions have to look at themselves and and change their value system to see to it that the you uh, that, that that they teach the proper thing and the universities produce the leaders of the future in the United States. And if they don't know how to come out really specifically against anti-Semitism, then there is a real problem. By the way, along the same lines, I noticed something. There's a guy named uh, Dr. Phil. He's one of the most well-known and uh, Christian TV personalities in the United States. And uh, the uh, he came out against universities. He condemned the testimonies of the leaders of the three universities, and uh, he said they exuded a sickening smugness, smugness and an arrogance and dismissiveness seldom seen in Congress. And uh, he said to be 100% clear, and he's a, it, this is, Dr. Phil is a Christian leader, he said to be 100% clear, using the dictionary definition of genocide, the question becomes, does calling for the deliberate killing of a large number of Jews to destroy uh, the Jewish ethnic group and the, and the, um, and the uh, nation of Israel violate your policy against bullying and, and harassment? So he came out, again, against these... Uh, University professors. That's something that didn't get a headline. But I think it's important. Even a, a Christian leader came out against these university presidents. Now I want to change the subject to finish off the program this week. Um, it's really things that are under the headline, but uh, uh, you won't hear these things elsewhere. And, I find these items in the back of Israeli newspapers, which uh, don't get much reading, but I find them interesting, and therefore I want to bring them up to the, to the uh, listeners. All the big information, like what's happened to the American campuses, you can see on TV and you can read in uh, major newspapers, but I look for items that you won't see elsewhere. And I found one now that uh, it's really under the headlines, Turns out that um, in Poland, a far-right Polish lawmaker used a fire extinguisher to put out Hanukkah candles in the uh, Polish parliament. So the speaker, the speaker kicked them out. The uh, this guy, whose his name is not so important, I can hardly pronounce it myself. It's got so many Z's and G's in it. Uh, the uh, he took an extinguisher uh, and uh, walked across the lobby of the parliament to where these Hanukkah candles were lit, and he and he put them out with an extinguisher, and he created a white cloud, and it forced the security guards to rush people out of the area, and the television footage showed people in the vicinity covered in powder from the extinguisher. He then took to the podium, this is a lawmaker in the uh, Polish parliament, he took to the podium in the law chamber and he described Hanukkah as satanic 
and he was restoring normality. Those, he said those who take part in acts of satanic worship should be ashamed. So uh, the Speaker of the House then removed him and, uh, and said he would inform prosecutors about his actions. He might be prosecuted for what he did. So uh, the head of the parliament in Poland said there'll be no tolerance for racism, xenophobia, anti-Semitism, as long as, as I am the Speaker of the Parliament. So, of course, the chief rabbi of Poland was asked what happened, his opinion, and uh, he said that the actions of this guy who uh, put a fire extinguisher to the Hanukkah lights uh, were not representative of the country and that he was embarrassed by them. Someone extinguished the Hanukkah candles and a few minutes later we relit them. Is That's what they did, by the way. After this guy put them out with a fire extinguisher. So the rabbi went on to say, for thousands of years, our enemies have been trying to extinguish us. Uh, and uh, we won't let that happen. And also, the Cardinal of Poland, Poland uh, posted a, a, on the media stating that he was ashamed of what happened. And he said, I apologize to the entire Jewish community in Poland. So, I mean, we've made some uh, progress, at least in Poland. And, uh, of course, everybody had something to say. The, uh, the head of the, uh, or the Conference of European Rabbis said something about it. And uh, just about everybody else had something to say. So uh, here we have an incident that doesn't get much headlines. As a matter of fact, it doesn't get any headlines. But I thought that the... Uh, Listeners would find it of, uh, of interest. Uh, by the way, along the same lines, uh, the, uh, there's a report now. The uh, uh, anti-Semitism is uh, r rising in the United States, and what happened uh, with the uh, <clears throat> with the three presidents' universities is, uh, shows that, that there's a uh, there's not much combating anti-Semitism like there should be. At any rate, it turns out that uh, the, uh, they the, uh, the Jewish People Policy Institute and the World Zionist Organization came out with a report that said almost 40% of ultra-Orthodox Jews in the United States are considering Aliyah to Israel. This survey... Uh, showed that the general Orthodox Jewish community shared similar sentiments, with 35% contemplating Aliyah. In addition, 26% are considering joining a defense league, and 31% are exercising more caution in displaying Jewish symbols, which is interesting, by the way. A very good friend of mine, a Jewish fellow that I went to college with that I'm in contact um, I write correspondence all the time. He lives in a suburb of Philadelphia, and uh, he's not um, Orthodox, but he, is, he observes as many rituals as he can, and he lights um, Hanukkah candles every year. And this year, he said he's not going to put his Hanukkah candles in the window. And we're talking about in a Jewish suburb of Philadelphia. At any rate, it turns out this... Uh, According to the Jewish Peace, uh, People Policy Institute, 
among conservative Jews in the United States, 16% are considering Aliyah and 21% were open to joining a defense league and 27% were more careful about publicly displaying Jewish symbols. The, uh, in the Reformed Jewish sector, 11% are considering Aliyah, 26% are willing to join a defense league, and um, 41% are exercising increased caution about wearing Jewish symbols. And that is really bad news. Really, it's terrible. Turns out, by the way, without going into the percentages, which, you know, that's just numbers, the, uh, the concern for safety among American Jews has prompted uh, changes in behavior. Uh, there are people more cautious about wearing Jewish symbols, in other words, there is a sense of vulnerability among the Jews in America that didn't exist before. The, the, a substantial number of very liberal Jews perceive Israel as too aggressive, uh, while conservative Jews tend to believe Israel's response is not aggressive. So the American Jews respond, interestingly, to what's happening in Israel according to their own political perspectives in the United States. The Democrats are more liberal, the Republicans are more conservative, the Republicans are more supportive of Israel, the Democrats are less supportive, but both the Republican Jews and the Democrat Jews are worried about their own safety, so they're taking down their Jewish symbols. And uh, it's very sad, it really is. And uh, I don't know how accurate all these percentages are, but it's interesting to note that things are not the same now as they were in my day, and it's certainly not the same as they were only 10 years ago. Things have changed in the United States. They haven't changed for the better. Let's hope things improve. Until next time, thanks for listening. Jay Shapiro, signing.